If you have time today, I, I would encourage you to read from Psalm 9 to Psalm 15. They seem to go together, and I wanted to read them all, and I read them five or six times this week and timed it out so that I knew how long it took, but I, I don't want to take that time this morning. But they fit together, and, and it will even provide more context for uh, the word of the Lord uh, this morning. But uh, we will settle ourselves with Psalm 14, and then we will jump back to Psalm 10 a little bit uh, also. Psalm 14, starting at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside, together they have been corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Father, we thank you for your word today. And uh, as we go into this text and into this passage of Scripture, as we continue to evaluate the things that we say to ourselves and try and determine whether or not they matter, I pray that this difficult text today will drive home the point that, yes, it does matter. Teach us to speak truth in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's one particular uh, commercial campaign that has been running for the last little while, and I have found it fascinating. There's a, one of the commercials is a description or a, 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 a picture of a man out in his backyard working, and he's up in a tree, and he's using a pole to cut his tree, and the pole hits the electricity, and it zaps him, and it turns all the electricity off in his house. And there's this sort of stunned silence and this conversation. At the end of the commercial, it comes on the screen. Most injuries in life are preventable. Have a word with yourself. There's a few more, but that's sufficient. Some of you have seen those commercials. It's a smart campaign. The point of it is that there are um, many physical injuries that we uh, that are preventable if we would have a word with ourselves. In other words, if we would talk to ourselves before we actually did what we were about to do. I wish I had thought of that for the series, the series of sermons. And I would have come up with a couple of commercials that related in the area of sin. And my tagline would be, most sin is preventable. Have a word with yourself. And there might be a, a, a 30 second commercial on worry or on fear. Maybe there would be one on sexual sin and sexual pleasure or maybe one on pride. But again, the tagline at the end of that would be most sin in life is preventable. Have a word with yourself. My prayer in these messages over these last couple of weeks and into the two or three that are remaining is that we would understand that by sanctifying our self-talk, by bringing our self-talk in line with the word of God and having it shaped by the truth of God, it will impact our thinking and our attitudes and our actions. My goal last week was simple. It was to help us understand through four texts in the book of Deuteronomy 
these following three things. One, that God is aware of the things that we say to ourselves. In fact, many of the things that we say to ourselves, we wouldn't dare say out loud, but God is aware of those conversations we have in our hearts. The second thing that we saw last week is that those conversations that we have with our, in ourselves matter. God is concerned. He would say, don't have an unworthy uh, thought. Don't have an un or an evil thought. Beware lest you say in your heart. So these conversations matter to God. And then the third thing that we realized was that God tells us how we can change that. The way that we can change our inner conversations to be in line with truth. Today I want to pick up with one assumption that I said was absolutely necessary if we were going to proceed with this understanding that we need to change what we say to ourselves. And that is the assumption that there is a God. There is a God. The the text before us is a difficult one and its implications are significant. Because what happens to me when in my life when my self-talk denies the existence of God? Does atheistic self-talk impact my day-to-day living? And the text that we read suggests that it does. It's a text that's recorded twice in the book of Psalms. You'll find almost the identical psalm with a few changes in Psalm 53. That made me sit up and think, okay, God is trying to make a point here. It singles out the person whose conduct, not speech, evidences a refusal to believe in God. The atheist here is anonymous. For the fool speaks not to an audience, but to himself, to his heart. And as I see it, this is one of the most critical topics of self-talk that the Bible addresses. What we say to ourselves about God matters. The first thing that we find then, and it's the first point on the screen, the fool described, or David's assessment of the fool. says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I would say again, beloved, that is dangerous self-talk. This verse, along with Psalm 23, is probably one of the most quoted and well-known verses in the Psalms. And for some people, it's one of the most offensive verses. If you call somebody a fool for not believing what you do, that's a sure way to end a conversation. Well, let me uh, pull this out just a little bit before you completely turn off. I understand uh, atheism has been around the world as long as it has been created, at least since the fall. Either in a practical way or in an intellectual way, people have denied that there is a God. It seems, though, that in the last 200 years, that kind of thinking has been even ramped up more. And so it might be more common today to hear somebody say, the fool says in his heart, there is a God. You find those who embrace a belief in Christ and a confidence in Scripture to more and more be made out to be fools. Be that as it may, I want to wrestle with the Scripture text today which might more literally say, the fool says in his heart, no God. When we talk about heart, we talk about the very core of a person's being. We're not talking about the thing that pumps blood there. What we're talking about is is the seat of mind, emotions, and will. The very center of who we are. And so here what David is saying is at the very center of their being, this individual denies the existence of God. The Hebrew word for fool, and there's three of them uh, that you'll find most often used in the Old Testament. And whenever I hear the word fool, 
Um, this is my own self-talk, and I probably shouldn't listen to myself. But I think of Mr. T. Some of you remember Mr. T and that one word that he said, fool. <laughs> Anyhow, that's what I think of when I read the word fool often. But the fool, the word fool, one of the, those three words, has three consonants, N-B-L. That's why we read the story of Nabal this morning. Because Nabal's name means fool. I'm not exactly sure why anyone would name their child fool. Sometimes our children certainly do foolish things. But it would be never anything that we would name our child. And at first, though, glance, the definition of fool doesn't seem to resonate with us. And I want to help us understand biblically first how the Bible understands the word fool. Because when you think about Nabal, and I read the first book, Nabal was a very successful man. He was rich. He had a lot of cattle and, 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 and sheep. He had many servants. He had a beautiful and intelligent wife. He had a thriving business. And yet the description of Nabal and his name means that he was a fool. This past, uh, a couple weeks ago, I finished reading a book I got for Christmas on by Chris Hatfield, An Ast- Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. He's probably one of the most well-known uh, Canadian astronauts uh, today. And it is clear as I read this book that these women and men who are astronauts are brilliant beyond description. Uh, their, their education, their training, their experience, their ability to do just about anything, anywhere, it, it, it staggers my mind. I don't think any of us would dare call any of them a fool. And yet I read during the days of, uh, about during the days of the Soviet Union, about the Russian cosmonaut, German Titov, who reflected on the existence of God following his return from orbiting the earth. He said, some people say that there is a God out there. But in my travels around the earth all day long, I looked around and I didn't see him. I saw no God. I saw no angels. But as one person quipped, of course, had Titoff climbed out of his craft without his spacesuit, he would have quickly met God. According to the Bible, those comments would allow us to call him a fool. I give those examples to help you understand that when we, the Bible uses the word fool, it's not referring to a simpleton. It's not an intellectual statement. It does not describe a person of mental incompetence. Rather, it defines a person of moral insensitivity and spiritual incompetence. And when you understand that, then all of the phrases in the Bible that refer to fool take on a different light. And all three of the words have that understanding. It's not mental incompetence, but it is moral incompetence or deficiency. So when you read that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, it takes on a completely different understanding. So again, then, it is a person who is not morally deficient, or who is morally deficient, rather, not mentally deficient. In other words, it's a synonym for a sinner, and it describes everyone who has no place for God in their life. So as we come back to Psalm 14, one, the very first one, first verse says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is no one who does good. That there is a statement that describes then the, 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 the external behaviors of somebody who says in their heart there is no God. 
have been trying to tell us that what we say in our heart will eventually come out in our attitudes and our actions. In, in other words, at the very center of his or her heart, at the core of their being, in the depths of their soul, they are rejecting the knowledge of God. They are a practical atheist, not necessarily an intellectual one. They live as though there is no God with whom they have to deal. They order their life as if there is no heaven, no hell, no judgment, and no eternal, or no, and no eternal judgment. Loved ones, I hope you see and will point it out the importance of self-talk on character and behavior. Because the result of atheistic self-talk is a corrupt life. It can't be any other way. Flip back to Psalm 10. And it's, uh, I find Psalm 10, I found it fascinating because I found it to be a commentary on Psalm 14 verse 1 and Psalm 53 verse 1. And in four examples of self-talk, it describes what a person believes about God and how that impacts their behavior. Sort of the content and the ramifications of atheistic self-talk. And what's fascinating to me in both Psalm 14 and in Psalm 10, there is a contrast between an atheistic worldview and a theistic worldview. There's a contrast between those who don't believe in God and those who do believe in God. And the psalmist is one who do, does believe in God. So as he begins Psalm 10, he begins with questions that probably every one of us here who is a follower of God has asked from time to time. Why do you stand so far away, God? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the schemes they have in, they have devised. See, the psalmist is wrestling with, with stuff. He, he knows, he believes in God. He's, God is involved in his life. And yet, for some reason, God is not living up to his expectations of what he should do. And I'm, I think probably every one of us has asked at one point or another in our lives, where are you, God? Why don't you do something? And so here's the situation that he's been reflecting on. As he's looking around him and he sees, he sees the wicked prospering. He sees them living as though there's no account for anything that they do. His prayers are going unanswered. There seems to be no justice. And God seems to have disappeared off of the scene. Psalmist is bothered by the apparent reward of living as though there is no God. He says, for the wicked boast about his own cravings. And the one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord in all his scheming. And then here is the very first example of self-talk in chapter 10 in verse 4. It says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That's fascinating. The New King James Version says, God is in none of his thoughts. The NIV says, in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. The New Living Translation says they seem to think that God is dead. Loved ones, that is the self-talk of an atheist. There is no God. I am not accountable. And this is where we all want to go at times in our lives. We all chafe against accountability. We all chafe against authority. And we certainly don't like moral authority. We don't like anybody telling us how we have to live, how we have to think, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what goes on in our bedrooms, what shouldn't go on in our bedrooms. We don't want anybody interfering with our lives. And so when you tell yourself that God does not exist... You convince yourself then that you're not accountable. And you will end up living then in 
This is true. You'll live like Hitler or Stalin. You'll live like Marx or Darwin. You'll live like Robert Picton or like the Bacon brothers. You'll live like you and I. Following the desires of our hearts and of our flesh. And as one said, when the passions of man are set free in an empty universe, what's the result? Chaos. You read the book of Judges and what's the final commentary in the book of Judges? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If our goal is to be autonomous, then we must either deny God's existence altogether or convince ourselves that he is too far beyond us to have any practical influence on our lives. That is very dangerous thinking. How many of the moral challenges and the issues that we face today are a direct result of self-talk that says, There is no God. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 5, there he says, his ways prosper at all times. And he he expresses more of his thinking when he says, when he says in himself, your judgments are on high, they're out of sight. In other words, God, you can't see what I'm doing. Your judgments have no impact on my life. Nothing's ever happened to me. So I'm going to keep on living as I want to live. For all his foes, he puffs at them. He's in charge of his own destiny. He's in charge charge of his own life. He's got power. He's got authority. He can gauge whatever happens in his life. Then you go to verse 6 of Psalm 10 and you find more. Loved ones, you can't skip over this stuff. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. What arrogance. That life is in my hand. Nobody will ever tell me what to do or where to go. I'm in control of all that happens to me. He goes on and he says that that is expressed through his speech and through his oppressive acts. He says what he wants. He does what he wants. And it's all with apparent immunity. Why such rampant evil around us? Why such arrogant behavior? Why so many dictators and drug lords? Why so many traffickers of sex and pleasure? Why such exploitation of the poor? Because we say to ourselves, I'm untouchable. Nobody can tell me what to do. Who are you to stand in my way? And then we come to verse 11 of chapter 10. This again is getting at the heart of one who denies the existence of God. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. And he has hidden his face. And he will never see it. There it's almost a mocking kind of tone. If there is a God, he's got a poor memory. Or he's unable or unwilling to watch me and to see what I'm doing. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Moreover, he can't be at all places at once. So he convinces himself that he lives autonomously. Beloved, we know the danger of autonomous living. Years ago, a book was um, produced. I think it was Bill Hybels who wrote the book. And he asked the question on the front of the book. It was on character. Who are you when nobody's watching? What kind of spouse? What kind of employee? When your boss isn't around to check up on you, what kind of things do you do? How long are your breaks? What kind of child are you when you're talking about your parents behind their back? What kind of a parent are you when nobody else is watching? 
What do you do late at night? What do you do early in the morning? What do you do mid-afternoon? If your self-talk tells you that nobody sees and nobody knows, it can guarantee you eventually it will lead you into corrupt behavior. On the flip side, I was reading a book um, years ago, and I was trying to find the book, and I remember I had lent it out, which I'm happy to do. I'm always happy to get them back, too. But I would lent the book out, and uh, so I'm recalling the story uh, that was in the book um, a little bit from memory. But it was a story that gave an account of, of an event that happened near the end of the Civil War in America. And the description was that there was really moral chaos in a lot of the cities as there was a lot of drunkenness and there were a lot of immoral behavior. A lot of um, this was happening out in the open. And in one particular little town with the main street that went down the middle of the town, two men approached the town from opposite directions walking down the main street. And as they were walking down the main street from opposite directions, one particularly noticed how the other one just kept his eyes fixed straight in front of him. Didn't divert his gaze to the left or to the right, depending on which side you're sitting today. But he didn't diverge his, didn't, didn't, didn't change his gaze from right in front of him. As they kept approaching, they passed each other, and then kind of like a duel, after a, first, a couple steps, they both simultaneously turned around and looked at each other. And the first man said to the second man, what is the chief end of man? And his response was to love God and enjoy him forever. He says, I knew it by the way you were walking that you were a catechism man. In other words, what he believed about God and what he talked to himself about truth and about how he should live affected the way that he managed himself as he walked through that town, even though maybe nobody else was watching him. As we come to verse 12 of chapter 10, it's rather a triumphant turn from the psalmist. He, he started out wondering where God was and if God knew anything. But now in verse 12, he says, Arise, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. And then he asks a question again. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, and here's the fourth example of self-talk, you will not call to account. In the end of the day, beloved, what you tell yourself about God, the character of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, the existence of God, will have a direct bearing on your thinking, on your words, and on your behavior. In this psalm, we have two different people described. One who believes in God and wrestles with God, and and the other who says there is no God and how it impacts his words and his deeds. I suspect some of you might be thinking in your own hearts and your self-talk even this morning might be your nuts, Paul. I'm really offended that you would put me in a category described in Psalm 10 or Psalm 14. I may not believe in God, but I'm not a bad person. I'm not a fool. The fact of the matter, though, is these words are not mine. They're God's. And secondly, they don't just apply to some of humanity. They apply to all humanity. At one point, every single one of us was characterized by atheistic self-talk. Paul says to the Colossians, you were his enemies, you were God's enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. David's assessment of the fool, then, 
means a word that represents God's appraisal of anyone who tries to live without him. It's nothing short of spiritual insanity to attempt to live apart from God. Loved ones, I can't think of a more dangerous self-talk rather than before we become a follower of Christ or after we become a follower of Christ to say there is no God and that we're not accountable to him. So that's David's description of the fool. Cheery stuff. We come to verse uh, 2 and 3 and we find God's assessment now. Very different. In verse 1, we have the person who says in his heart, there is no God. In verse 2, we read here that God looks down on the human race to see if there is any who understand, who seek after him. It's fascinating to me that verse, this is the contrasting views in life. There are those who will go to their grave denying there is no God, and there are those who go to their grave saying God is in heaven on his throne, looking down and watching out on earth. So David paints a picture then of a God who's very aware of every individual life. Verse 14, he's the God who is there. He's the God who observes. He's the God who who sees. As I mentioned last week, the many ways that God has revealed himself to us. We see it in creation. We see it in his word. We see it in Christ. We see it in ourselves. As the psalmist said, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes watch as he examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked. So we have this contrast. The atheist says in his heart, there is no God. The Bible says no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. David reminds us that God is watching. That the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race. And what is he looking for? Well, he he described it here. He's looking for the fact, is there anyone who understands? Is there anyone who seeks after God? Have they no knowledge or they have altogether turned aside? They have altogether become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I don't know about you, but that's, that shocks me. It certainly takes away any notion of pride that I might have in myself. David is not just drawing a distinction between Israel and the wicked around them. He's drawing a distinction between everybody who's ever been created and God. And when God looks down on the human race, he says, all have turned away, all have been corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In other words, and I say this with the biblical definition, we are all fools. And as we listen to these words, though, we might reflect um, in our minds about hearing them somewhere else in Scripture. And you'd be right. Because you'd go to Romans chapter 3 and you'd find these words placed with other words. And, and there Paul is talking again, not about any more, uh, mental deficiency, but he's talking about moral deficiency. And he says there that both Jews and Greeks, in other words, the whole human race have sinned and said in their heart, there is no God. Is there anyone that understands the insanity then of rejecting him? Are there any of us that understand the foolishness of rebellion against God? Have we carefully considered the ramifications of our unbelief? The Bible's answer to that would say, no, there is no one. That's the universal testimony of Scripture. God's investigation reveals that there are no exceptions, not even one. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It was C.S. Lewis who once quipped, 
No clever arrangement of bad eggs will ever make a good omelet. I like that. The same can be said, though, about the depravity of man. No matter how cleverly man may try to arrange his life, he is still inherently evil and incapable of being good on his own. Verse 5 of chapter 14 then goes on and says, There they are in great terror, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. The end of self-talk that denies the existence of God, then which leads into actions which are opposed to what God has said is certain judgment. So certain of this is David that he speaks in the past tense. Those who do not fear God, who do not sanctify their self-talk, will face certain terror. Loved ones, there's no joy in looking at a text like this. But there is eternal benefit. And God knows today that there are some foolish people here. And God is gracious and merciful. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so it's in his providence that all of us are gathered here this morning, listening to a servant titled, Talking to Myself, When I Don't Believe in God. Beloved, because of the outcome of God's observations, we would despair. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need a Savior. Because in Jesus, all the righteous demands of God were fulfilled. All of the wisdom of God was lived out and expressed. And what we were unable to do, Christ did. And that's why it's such an amazing thing, because when we come to Christ, we all come on the same level playing field. There's nothing in any of us that makes us any better than the next person, other than the fact that that we're all sinners. And we all find salvation in the same way, through the same person, by putting our faith and trust In Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's able to save us. He's the only one who's able to change our hearts. He's the only one who's able to turn us from our foolish ways and to help us walk in the ways of wisdom. And so as we conclude, three three categories of people. Some are proud atheists. And there will be some of them here today. By that I only mean that yours is a settled conviction that there is no God. And as I reflected on this, it's difficult to know which comes first. Is it our sinful acts that lead us to find solace in a settled belief that there is no God? Or is it our settled belief that there is no God that leads us to sin brazenly because we have told ourselves again and again and again that there is no God and that he will not hold us to account? It's a precarious position to be in. But I want you to know that God is merciful and God is gracious. I want you to know that his grace extends to all who refuse and reject him. If you're willing to begin to investigate, if you're willing to humble your heart, if you're willing to, to open your mind and look at the evidence around, God is gracious and just to forgive us our sins.
So I would say to you today, if you're in this category, have a word with yourself. God's invitation is clear. Come to me all who are, uh, come, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like white wool. Have a word with yourself. Come to God today. The second category is what I would call ignorant atheists. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just believe that even in a congregation like ours today, there are some who really have no knowledge of God. You just never thought about it. It's never occurred to you. You've never kind of tossed around in your head whether there is a God or whether he exists or if that should have any impact on your life. The Bible talks about a group of people like that in Acts chapter 17. And they were a, a group of individuals who, they, they worshipped all kinds of things. Whether we believe in a God or not, we all, we all worship stuff. And so they had just hundreds of idols. They had one idol in particular that was an idol to an unknown God. Because they had this kind of inkling, this kind of wondering, but they had no knowledge of, of who this God might be that they might offend if they didn't have an idol to an unknown God. And so the Apostle Paul came along and he says, I want to tell you about that unknown God. It's a beautiful text of Scripture as he describes then the kind of God that God reveals himself to us as being. A God who is not dependent upon mankind. A God who has created all of mankind, men and women, boys and girls. A God who has set the boundaries of our lives, where we should live and where we won't live. A God who has made himself accessible to us so that if we seek him, we will find him. He's a God in whom we live and have our being. He's, he's, he, he's, he's the essence of our life. And, and he says that, that we ought not worship him as though he's a, a being of gold or silver or stone, an image formed of art or the imagination of our man. But he is, he is a God who describes himself as we sung about and as we read in scripture, a God that is worthy of our worship. And then he says this, the times of ignorance have been overlooked. The times of, of your going around and saying, there is no God, I don't know if there is God, I, you know, I just don't have time. God is saying, that's enough now. I've told you about who I am. He says, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So I would say, if you're here today and you would be, in a polite term, what we would call an ignorant atheist. You just have never really thought about it. I would say, have a word with yourself. Have a word with yourself. Turn to Christ today. Start seeking him. The Bible says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. God will turn away none who seek after him. And finally, some of us are practical atheists. That's all of us. That's all of us. What I'm talking about here is those of us who on a daily basis embrace atheistic self-talk. You say, well, what are you talking about, Paul? Well, whenever I act in a manner inconsistent with the character of God or his will for my life, at that moment, I too become an anonymous atheist. Whenever I choose to do what God forbids, my behavior reveals my self-talk, which essentially, as I have said in my heart, there is no God. I am not accountable to him. 
He does not see what I'm doing. He's preoccupied or busy with something else. So I will go ahead and do what I want to do. I have said in my heart, you will not demand an account. Oh, loved ones, have a word with yourself. Have a word with yourself. God is not hidden. God is not unaware. God is concerned with how we live. And his invitation is to all of us as well, confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Loved ones, whether it's intellectual atheism, whether it's practical atheism, whether it's ignorant atheism, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. Psalm says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent and who can live in your holy mountain? The one who lives honestly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges truth in his heart. The truth is there is a God. Will you find your rest in him today?